1: This is Phil Lamar. Hey, this is Robin Taylor, aka the Penguin from Gotham. And
0: you are listening to Geek Vibe Live. And here we go. Welcome to a special edition of Geek Vibe Interview. I'm your guest host, Martin Sexton. On today's show, I have the honor of talking to a man who's been one of the most prolific and diverse writers in the last 40 years. Hopefully he won't think I'm dating him too much by saying that. During his career, he has written for scores of comic books, including works on titles like Justice League International, Captain America, and Spider-Man, which includes the fan favorite, Kraven's Last Hunt, which we'll hopefully talk to about here in a bit. In addition, he has written for graphic novels, for different television series, and is a screenwriter for a number of the animated DC straight-to-video releases. If that wasn't all enough, and uh, I know this for a fact because I haven't talked to him, he's also one of the nicest people you could ever hope to meet. I'm pleased to welcome writer J.M. DeMatteis to Geek Slide
1: Live interview. Thanks for giving us some of your time, J.M., that's a pleasure. I think after that introduction I should stop now. I think it's going to get better than that. Right.
0: <laughs> hey, let's let's start from the beginning. Uh and when I say the beginning before you became you know, JM Day Mateus uh writer extraordinaire, you were John Mark Mateus, mu- uh, aspiring musician. Uh right. so uh what uh what got you started in music?
1: You know, from the time I was a kid, I was just creative that was that was my thing i wasn 't very good at much of anything else, but uh, you know i uh, I think even before I was writing, I was drawing as a kid. I spent a good part of my childhood drawing and then rock and roll grabbed my imagination, so I learned how to play the guitar and uh, started writing songs and singing and playing in bands and and uh, and kind of used that as well as a bridge into music journalism so that I could use my writing skills there and so I was just following all these different passions wherever they led. And um, at some point, the writing really became more prominent for me. I think I st- I'm still a musician. I still write. I still play. In fact, I'm, I'm performing at a little music festival in a couple of weeks uh, for the first time in years. And I love it. But I don't think I, I had the nervous system for the musician's lifestyle. I think life on the road would have completely killed me. I'm much more suited to... To sitting in my office and playing with my imaginary friends all day, you know.
0: So, um,
1: so, so, uh, when when uh, when I broke through with the comic book stuff, that's that was the path that I followed, and it was great because it led to all those other things you mentioned.
0: So, uh, would you think that your, you know, your, your your musical background did it give you any advantages as far as in your writing?
1: Ad- Advantages—I don't know if I'd call them advantages—but it gave me a, a point of view, a perspective. I've talked about this before. I find, you know, writing itself to be kind of a musical process, and certainly writing comics, uh, where we're dealing with the way. Uh, the way a visual flows across the page, the way the rhythm that because we write in these in these little captions, the r- the rhythm that we have to create with the words, both within the captions and then caption to caption and carrying us across the page, there's like the the artist doing one thing, the the, the captions are doing another. It's like two musicians working off each other. There's a there's a melody, there's a beat, there's a rhythm, and so I tend to see my writing in, in musical terms, or, or even more than C, I feel it that way, you know? Right. Uh, someone else would probably feel very differently, but, but, but I, I feel that way because of my musical background.
0: We'll see if that actually makes sense. So uh, so how did you end up getting, as far as writing for comics? Because, uh, you know, most people, that's not the first thing they think of when they're going to become a writer. They're going to, you know, write the great American novel, or they're going to write for this magazine.
1: What, what made you end
0: up going toward comics?
1: Right. Well, you know, I, I never saw myself as just a comic book writer. I, I saw myself as a writer. And as I said, I, I was doing music journalism uh, for a lot of different papers and magazines and things. And, uh, but I loved comics. I'm just, just like you and probably anyone who's listening to this. I grew up completely immersed in and loving comic books. And so that was one of the things I always wanted to do. And uh, to make a very long story short... It was just a question of banging my head against the the wall uh, enough times that it finally cracked, and I sold something. And and, uh, actually, the very first thing I ever sold, weirdly, was I knew a guy from college who was working at Marvel, and he had sold some things. Do you remember Crazy Magazine? Yep. That was Marvel's sort of mad knockoff. And... uh, I sold a few pieces uh, to Crazy Magazine. It did nothing for my career. It didn't lead anywhere or do anything, but I got published and I got a check with Spider-Man's face on it. So it doesn't get much better than that, <laughs> you know. And uh, and a little while after that is when I, I you know, I, I would send stuff into Marvel or DC. I was, I, you know, and so basically, I got I just through writing in blindly. I got connected to Paul Levitz and I start who was editing the DC anthology books, which in those days was how you broke into comics, you know, that you broke in learning your craft, writing five- to eight-page stories for House of Mystery or House of Secrets or Weird War Tales and that whole, that whole uh, run of books that they had in those days. And I pitched Paul and I pitched Paul and I pitched Paul until finally I sold him something. And one sale led to the next, which led to the next, and, and I was going strong for about six months selling him stories for those books. And I remember I finally got to write my first full-page story, which is a full 22-page Weird War Tales. I couldn't imagine I had to fill 22 pages, you know. Um, And then came the famous D.C. implosion, uh, when when they canceled uh, a ton of their books and that uh, a lot of of writers and artists got cast by the wayside. And since I was uh, brand new, I was one of the first to go. There was no work for, like, another... God, nine months or something, ten months, I didn't get any other work out of them. But, you know, at the same time, I was still doing my journalism. Uh, I, was, I was knocking on the door at Marvel. Jim Shooter took an interest in me, um, would throw me little gigs here and there. And then uh, DC opened up again, and, and I started doing work for them regularly. And that was probably, God, it does make me sound old, doesn't it? It was <laughs> in the spring of 1979, and it's been pretty much nonstop ever since.
0: So, I mean, were you basically still considered freelance? Did you not actually work? Yes. For,
1: okay. No, so. I, I was freelance. I was freelance. there was a point where um, Len Wein offered me a staff gig. He wanted me to be his assistant. Len was uh, aside from being one of the earliest editors I worked with, he was really my my first real mentor in the business. The first one who looked at my work and said you know, you've got something special. Let me work with you and help you cultivate that. And, you, you know, you can't put a price on that. Uh, I still miss Len terribly. He's one of the sweetest human beings and most talented writers this business has ever seen, you know. And uh, so he offered me a gig as his assistant on staff. And I was I almost took it, but it was uh, right around the time when my son was born. And, uh, and I realized two things happened. One was I realized... I don't want to be away from my kid. I don't want to be in an office all day away from my kid. And uh, right at the same time, Jim Shooter offered me a freelance contract, an exclusive contract, as a freelancer at Marvel. And, you know, a freelance contract guarantees you X amount of work, so that's great, so you have sort of the advantage of being on staff, but you're still a freelancer working at home. So I struggled with that one, but really in the end it was uh, to be with my son and I took the, took the contract at Marvel, and, and that's what brought me to Marvel from D.C. in 1980.
0: See, you're also, we can add psychic to your fame because I was about ready to ask you about the mentor part. Oh, and you just, oh that's you just answered
1: it. <laughs> Uh So, right, so uh, you don't have to ask any other questions. I will just answer them from now
0: well, on. Well, hey, that works for me. But yeah. so far, you're doing great. So, you're yes. just leading me right in. Okay, um, so, you know, there's always been the talk about, as far as writing goes, where, you know, well, artists will get full scripts or get just breakdowns. What, did you have a way that you worked best or did you work whichever way that whoever you're working for told you to do it?
1: Yeah, that's, that was basically it, and I'm glad it was. Every when I started at DC, everything was full script, and I think when you're learning, that's that's probably the best way to learn because you you know you're in control of everything: page one, panel one, camera directions, captions, dialogue, everything. You you know you have to pace the story, you have to figure out every every little detail of the story. So going over to Marvel, where they were working plot first, was at first an adjustment to figure out. How much you give the artist, how much you don't give the artist, um, but frankly, for me, over the years as it as it evolved my plots um, my plots were always pretty tight and, and and as time went on, they actually got tighter uh, in the beginning. I think I thought you know that it was expected to keep them a little bit looser, but i I felt more in control, so even my plots are often you know page by page, panel by panel, but the advantage of Marvel style um, is that. Whatever you're seeing in your head when you're writing that plot, again, even if it's page by page, panel by panel, angle by angle, you don't write the final script until you see the artwork. So you you write the plot, you get the artwork back, and then you're reacting to the artwork, which is very different than seeing it in your head and writing full script. So when you're reacting to the artwork... Well, there's that sequence that you might have thought would have needed a lot of dialogue or a lot of captions to explain it, and you look at the art, and you see that the artist has hit all the beats that you need emotionally and story-wise, and you may only want to put one word on that page or two words or no words. You know, Another sequence may come in where you thought it was all really clear, and the art comes back, and it's not clear, so you have to write a lot more there. But but you know, sometimes just the character's gesture or expression and the way the artist draws it spark something in you and you may write something that you didn't expect so it's a lot of fun working marvel style but i really i still work and work both ways i just had two new projects that came out recently the the girl in the bay uh from burger books at dark horse which will have the collected edition will be out august 28th he said plugging it yes. and um that was written full script and then i did imagination uh, impossible i'm sorry i forgot the title of my own project impossible <laughs> incorporated for idw with my buddy mike cavallero and we worked marvel style I wrote, a, I wrote a tight plot he drew it and then i dialogued it so i still love working both ways cuz there's fun fun to doing it both ways
0: Okay, so you know, actually, you talked a little bit about this in your panel over the weekend. As far as you know, the artist, you've given him, uh, you know, the, the the script or the breakdown, and sometimes they don't give you exactly what you were kind of hoping for, and you end up having to put in more dialogue than you had planned. Right. Do you have any kind of leeway as far as, you know, when the artist hands you his artwork, can you not say, could you not give me a little more than what you've given me here, or are you just basically, you've got to
1: work with what you got? Well, it really depends. You know, when you're, when you're working on a monthly book, when you've got a tight uh, deadline, and more often than not, the deadlines are always tight, even when it's not a monthly book, because it seems like no matter how much time you have when you start, somehow by the time it gets on the schedule, everybody's late, even before they've written, we've written the first word. So if you have a little time and room, yeah, you can say, can we fix this sequence? Can we clarify that? But more often than not, there's not time. Because, you know, I have to write the script so the letterer can letter it, and, the, you know, the inker can ink it, and, we can, we, you know, there's a whole chain of people waiting for each stage to come through. So, more often than not, you have to work with what you've got. And like I said, often that's a great advantage because you get great things back, and sometimes it's not. And I think what I was saying on the panel, you know, sometimes it's like the art just isn't clear, so that's where you'll see, you know, your captions or dialogue like i am now leaping from this roof to the street because it's not clear in the artwork that he, that's that's what the character is doing uh, obviously you want you try to find a more elegant way to do it but you have to clarify the art through the script other times and i always use mike Zeck as the perfect example and and uh with, Cra- with uh, craven's last hunt uh mike's storytelling is so impeccable uh Everything is clear, so there's never a place where I have to explain what's happening in the pictures. Anyone could look at those pictures and know. Nor do I have to explain the surface emotions that the characters are feeling. It's clear on their faces. So with something like Craven's Last Hunt, if you read uh, the story, it's all, all the captions are interior monologue. Because I don't have to explain what's happening uh, on level one of the story, so I can go down to level two, level three, level four, and really, really dig deep into the characters' heads. And the other, the other example I love to use is uh, Sal Buscema, one of the the greatest, most underrated artists to ever work for Marvel Comics. I mean, he's just superb, and he's left his stamp on virtually everything at the company. We were working on Spectacular Spider-Man 200, which is one of my favorite single. Uh, issue Spider-Man stories that I've ever done. And at the end, it's the the, the the famous death of Harry Osborn. And I described it all to Sal in the plot, very detailed. But I still thought that I was going to have to really, really sell it through the writing. You know, really schmaltz it up, really be big and melodramatic and reach for the heartstrings. But Sal drew everything that I asked him to draw and drew it so impeccably and so full of emotion and movement that I got the last two or three pages, and I realized I literally didn't have to add another word. And if you look at that story, the last two or three pages have not a word on them because Sal did everything I asked him and more in the artwork.
0: Yes, I love Sal Bucinan. I of course, I love his brother John, too. Uh,
1: yes.
0: yes. Said, okay, so I talked to Paris Collins uh, a little, uh, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about like when he was working on New Gods, Uh, And this was kind of a dream project of his. He had certain writers in mind that he wanted to work with on New Gods. He said, you know, he he didn't quite get the ones he wanted. As a writer, do you ever do a project where you think, you know, this really would be really good if I got this particular artist to do this project? Or do do you have that kind of, you know, leeway or control in that matter?
1: Well, certainly when you're working on creator-owned projects, you know, you're choosing your collaborators. You know, you want, you're working with people that you want to be working with often. You know, you're coming to them with the idea before you even go to a, to a publisher. On a monthly book, it's, um, it's more the luck of the draw. You know, the, the editor is scrambling to find someone to come on the book, and sometimes the luck of the draw is a great thing um and sometimes it's not <laughs> and sometimes it's not even that the artist uh or writer isn't good because i'm sure the artists have the same feelings that the writers do uh, if only i had a different It's just just kind of what you're saying about paris if only I had a different writer um but sometimes it's just that there's no chemical connection between the two you know what i mean yeah. you need that magical chemical co- connection between writer and artist and I was just looking through uh, something of mine, on uh, an, an older series, and I, I won't say what it was because I don't want to insult anybody. And um, it just didn't click. I, I was, and, and it wasn't that the artwork was even bad. The artwork was actually pretty good. But something between the writing and the art didn't connect. So I'm reading the script, I'm reading the story, and I'm thinking, this is really an excellent story. And I keep thinking, God, if Mike Seck drew this, this would be like we'd be talking about this, uh, you know, all, years later, just the way we're talking about Craven. Um, but he didn't, and it didn't click, and so we're not. And and the other thing that's equally important, and, and the I think the average reader doesn't pay attention to, uh, because it's subtle, is the lettering. Lettering is so important, uh, in, in many ways just as important as the artwork, because for me as the writer, that's the delivery system for my script. And when the lettering flows and when it's artistic, and 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 it move your your eye follows it with ease. You're taking my story in in a totally different way. So the same the same book that I was looking at uh, the other day, uh, there were several issues where they switched letterers, and the lettering really wasn't good. And when the lettering is not good, it's a weird thing. Same words, same story. It's not as good because the it's not entering your eye and your mind the same way it would if a really great letterer was doing it.
0: Say it again. Here you go again. Uh, with Moonshadow, I thought the, yes. the the lettering and how it was done it was, it was kind of whimsical and kind of yes. really worked well with the story.
1: Well, that was Kevin Nolan, who's a great artist. So he letters like an artist. You know, his his lettering on that was fantastic, and that's another it's another example. Yeah, everything everything has to come into play. We had a we had a Craven panel recently where. Um, uh, it was me, Mike Zeck, Bob McCloud, and the letterer Rick Parker. You know, and you know if someone else had inked Mike on that book, we might not be talking about it today. If Rick Parker hadn't lettered it, we might not be talking about it today. With a comic, all the elements really have to have to come into balance, um, and and, uh, and as you said, we don't as, uh, we don't always have a, a choice with the artist. In fact, when The Girl in the Bay, which is a creator creator-owned series, uh, Karen Berger chose the artist. Uh, Corinne Howell, who I I didn't know, but I trusted Karen's taste, and it worked out great. She's she's young, she's pretty much brand new, and she's so talented, and we clicked, and the book looks great. So you know, sometimes the you know the editor's choice is a great thing. It's the thing that brings an artist into your life that you'll continue to work with for years after that.
0: Okay, so we've been talking about Craven's Last Hunt. Uh, one of the things that I was told when they heard I was talking to you, they said you have to ask about Cravens last time, so we're, we're going to do it. Everybody
1: uh, asked about Cravens? Yeah.
0: Last said, and uh, when I talked to Jim Sellacrop recently, of course, he gave you most of the credit for the whole thing, but he he mentioned, and I believe I read somewhere also that originally this wasn't that wasn't even a Spider-Man story.
1: Oh yeah, it's, it's it. I'll give you the short version. Okay. You know, the, the, I it, believe it or not, it originally started as a pitch. You know the character Wonder Man from the Avengers. Yep. It started as a Wonder Man piss because I had remembered some story where Wonder Man Wonder Man had died and come back, and I thought, what is that like to die and come back? And what if it, it, it was? I was. I came up with a story. was about the the relationship with his brother, the Grim Reaper, the villain, the Grim Reaper, and who kills him, buries him alive. Same thing, except I think in the original version he was he was dead for six months or something like that, and then he came back and had to reclaim his 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 life. And uh, I pitched that to Tom DeFalco, who, thank God, turned it down. <laughs> <laughs> I say this a lot, and it's true. The stories have lives of their own. The story knows what, where, where it has to go and how it has to end up. So this story kept kind of mutating and changing. I thought I knew what the story was, but the story was like, no, could you just let me be and let me evolve into what I need to be? So I then took it and turned it into a Batman story. Um, uh, it was a Batman story with the Joker, which I pitched to, I believe, Len Wein. But my Joker story explored a lot of Joker backstory, and it turned out, which I didn't know, they had just uh, started working on the Killing Joke with Alan Moore. And Len thought the two stories were too similar. Well, I, I, later I took that Joker element out of that story and did it for Legends of the Dark Knight as a story called Going Sane, which I think is one of the best uh, superhero stories I've ever done. But so I get rejected again, you know, by Len. A year goes by, I, I take out I take out the Joker, I put in Hugo Strange, I pitch it to Denny O'Neill. Uh, for whatever reason that I don't remember, oh, I, I know what it was. Denny rejected it because in those days they only did one Batman graphic novel a year, believe it or not. It was like, well, we already have our Batman graphic novel, come back next year, you know. So I've got this story that is obsessing me with this hero coming out. Out of the Grave, and I even remember my friend Mark Badger, wonderful artist, did a great shot of Batman coming out of the grave, very similar to the cover uh, that we ultimately saw with, uh, with Spider-Man coming out of the grave. But I put the idea away, and that's what I've learned over the years. You put the ideas away, they gestate, they evolve, they grow. So um, the time goes by, and Tom DeFalco, who was, uh, um, I don't think he was editor-in-chief yet, he was probably executive editor at Marvel, and at the time uh, Jim Owsley, who we now know as Christopher Priest, was the spider-man editor and they took me out to lunch and they offered me uh the writing gig on spectacular spider-man and i i i I had come up with the spider-man version of this story but there still was no craven in it i had sort of created my own marvel universe version of Hugo strange to be the uh to be the villain but the basic idea of the villain defeating spider-man burying him alive putting on the costume all that was in there and uh they said that's great let's do it and uh and so it was going to be in the monthly spectacular Spider-Man book, and they said we've got Mike Zach. Mike and I had worked on Captain America together, so I was really excited uh, that Mike was was going to be on it. And because because Mike was on the book, I, it reminded me of a character that we created together, which was Vermin uh, from Captain America, and I thought perfect, you know, perfect character to balance the two different versions of Spider-Man to see how uh, the villain and the hero deal with this with this vicious vicious uh, man rat character, you know. So, but what happened was, I was in my office one day, and I always joke, but it's the truth. This is the days before the internet, so in order to waste time, writers had to do other things other than go online, you know. So I was flipping through our Marvel Universe Handbook, and I came across the entry for Craven, and uh, it mentioned in there that Craven was Russian. To this day, I don't know if that was ever established in a story, or if whoever wrote that entry just made it up because they would sometimes just make stuff up to fill out backstory. But I'm a big fan of Russian literature, uh, especially and particularly Dostoevsky. And something just clicked for me when I read that. And I suddenly, I knew Craven. I understood Craven, a character I hadn't given a second thought to ever. In fact, who I always viewed as like a third-tier, uh, not very uh, effective Spider-Man villain. So I called up the editor. I said, forget that new villain I've created. Craven is the villain. And uh, we started to work on the story. Then uh, Jim Oussey left staff. Uh, Jim Salakrup took over. And Salakrup was the one that said, you know what? You can't have Spider-Man dead and spectacular Spider-Man and fighting Dr. Octopus and Amazing Spider-Man. That makes no sense, and it's going to kill your story and kill, kill the suspense. So Jim was the one that came up with the idea of running one story through all three Spider-Man books for two months. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so he was the first one. Been, people have been doing it ever since, but it was the first time it was ever done, and that was Jim's idea, and I give him all the credit in the world for that. And, uh, and that's how Craven's Last Hunt was launched
0: okay, since we're talking of Craven, of course, uh he's become kind of in vogue now since the uh, last Spider Man movie and the director of Spider Man thought that he would like possibly to have Craven be in the next Spider Man. Mm-hmm. And of course Sony is also doing a Craven uh thing but doing a Craven standalone movie.
1: Allegedly, and, yeah. I don't know. Right, and,
0: uh, yeah. The the person that got to write it at this point, which is Richard Rank, uh, he mentioned that he would like to do a possible adaptation of Craven's Last Hunt.
1: Well, how do you do an adaptation of Craven's Last Hunt in a Craven movie without Spider-Man? Right,
0: which is exactly what the whole point of contention is. But, you know,
1: say they work that kind of thing out. If
0: they were to come to J.M.D. Mateus and say, hey, could you help us with this adaptation, would you be
1: willing to do it? Oh, in a heartbeat, of course I would. You know, of course I would. I'd be be thrilled. Um, I've always maintained that the best way to do Craven's Last Hunt is probably, I've written a bunch of the DC animated uh, movies, um, and uh, the most recent one was, was Constantine, and then they just announced Superman Red Son, which will be out next year, and I think that would be a great way to do this story because the, the problem I foresee always is that your lead character, your lead actor, is buried alive for a good chunk of the movie, and, it's, and, and the focus shifts from him to Craven. Uh, and, and, you know, they pay these guys a lot of money (laughs) and and actors have a lot of ego. So it's like, well, we're going to, you know, you're going to be in the movie, but for a third of it, we're not going to see much of you. You know, it's going to be the other guy's movie. So that's why I thought uh, doing it in an animated form would be a great way to do it. And I don't think the the, the actors' egos aren't quite as fragile, but if they want to do a a Craven's Ass Hunt movie, they'd almost have to do it as a standalone and not be involved in the current continuity because that Spider-Man is too young. Right. You know, he's only supposed to be what, seventeen?
0: Yeah, in the so. current format,
1: yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and some you know, for this story to really work, you need a more mature Peter Parker. You need that connection to Mary Jane. Ideally you need the marriage. Um, because that's his whole motivation for coming back and coming up out of the ground and out of the grave is his love for Mary Jane. Um, but yeah, I would I would love to be in if they do something like that, I would love to be involved in it if someone out there decides to do it as in an animated form. Oh, I'll, I'll actually. I'll write. If they want me to write the live action version. I'll write that too. But I'll write anything. <laughs> you know, I'll be happy to. I'd be happy to. I, I don't. You know, I don't. Why would I not want them to do it? It would be great. It'd be a wonderful thing to see.
0: So if they were to do the live action version, and I think you mentioned at your panel that you you don't like uh, casting folks, uh, but just for the point of argument, if they were to cast Craven, do you see anybody as Craven?
1: Like I said, I'm really, really bad at that, you know. And I, I tend to think about people uh, from movies that are now like too old for the part. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and and so I, 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 I'm not. Do you have any ideas? Does something come to mind for uh, you? Uh,
0: they've, they've mentioned a number of people I know that, on our web, our website. Uh, the gentleman who plays uh, Colossus in Deadpool said he would like to play Craven. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Right. And I, and yeah, you know, I, I said I can see it. Uh, um, or,
1: or what's his name for Guardians of the Galaxy, Dave Batista. He he might be a good Craven too, you know. Um, providing he can do the I I imagine Craven must have a Russian accent, you know. And so.
0: that's why, you know, the, the you know, the gentleman right who did Colossus right, right. He didn't
1: do the accent already, so he was good. right, 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you need someone you need someone who can look right in in the sense of really having that that build and at the same time you need someone who's really an actor who can really deliver the goods uh, emotionally, because Craven is a very, very complex guy. Uh, and especially and, in
0: that story. If yes,
1: yeah. So you can't just have, you know, some guy who's like a muscle man um, and can't act, because that would, then the, the whole story would collapse.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that. You do writing classes, am I correct?
1: I do. Thank you for offering me the chance to plug it. I do yes. a class called uh, Imagination 101, Uh, I haven't done one for a while, but I'm doing one in November, November 8th through 10th. It's in, uh, it'll be happening in Kingston, New York, and I have people have come from all over the country, and even from other countries, to take the class. It's a full weekend. We start on Friday, go through Sunday, very intimate. I try to keep the class small, maybe, you know, 10 people at most, and we cover the craft of writing for comics and animation, and we get into the the metaphysical metaphysical aspects of writing and the you know, as we, we cover it from, from from both angles and it's really, really fun and we, we kind of we lock ourselves away in a conference room for the weekend and we have a great time. And I get to share the stuff I've learned over the past forty years. You know, what happened was a few years back I was uh I was doing I was being interviewed at the Museum of Comic Art in the city. And as we were we, we did we talked for like two hours about my career, kinda like what we're doing now. But we got into the craft part of it, and you realize without how much you know that you didn't know you knew. Do you know what I mean by that? When you do something for a long time, you take it for granted that you know these things, and you just do them. But when you have to verbalize them, you suddenly go, oh, yeah, I have a lot of knowledge. And I know there's a lot of people that are creative that would like to write comics, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not an easy thing to get into, and I have a lot of, a lot of wisdom to share. So it's a great thing, and it's a great thing for me too because I inevitably find that if I spend a weekend with these people that I learn things as well. They ask really interesting questions that challenge me and force me to analyze what I do in a different way, and, and thus I learn something and they learn something, and it's, it's a really great weekend. So if anyone is interested, uh, go to my website, jmdmateas.com and go to the workshop sections, uh, and there is information there as well as an email address that you could email me with any questions.
0: Very good. Okay, i got one more thing before I let you go. Okay. And we're going to do a quick, uh, uh, I'm going to give you some names, and I want you hey. to just give me your quick impression. And then most of these actually are people that have worked with you art-wise.
1: Okay. Okay. Mike Zeck. As I said before, uh, brilliant, brilliant storyteller. I think he's one of the best mainstream comic book artists that ever was. Okay. Keith Giffen. Keith Giffen. First, mad genius, <laughs> Keith may be the single most creative person I've ever worked with in comics. I mean, I I, I I say this only half jokingly, but this is the way I explain Keith. When my when my son was little, he had this plastic bubble bear, and you would squeeze the bear's belly, and the head would pop up, and bubbles would come out. You know, you'd put bubble bubble liquid in there. And that's the way Keith is. You squeeze his belly and a hundred ideas come out. And if you don't like those ideas, you just squeeze his belly again and a hundred more come out. He is just, he's so creative and we have had such a great time working together for now for like 31 years, something like that, 32 years. It's really, it's really quite incredible. I love Keith and love working with him.
0: All right. Mark Bagley.
1: Mark Bagley. We had a great time working together on Spider-Man. He's probably... I don't know, next to Ditko and Remita is there anyone that's more identified with Spider-Man than Mark Bagley? He's done so much. He might have done more Spider-Man than just about anybody else. Um, great guy, uh, really nice guy, uh, a wonderful collaborator, and a pleasure to work with. Bob Uryansky. Bob was uh, two things. He was my my editor at Marvel. He was also my collaborator on uh, Ghost Rider and the Submariner series. And he was actually the first artist that I ever co-plotted a book with. So that was really fun. We're, you know, When we were doing Ghostwriter, we would basically we'd get on the phone and just start talking and spitballing, and it was really, really fun. And by the end of a conversation, we had a whole idea worked out. I would go write it up. He'd draw it. I'd dialogue it, and it was a great collaboration. And, and you know, you, you stay in the business long enough and you make these connections with people and you make these friendships that even if you don't see them for years, uh, we become part of an extended family. Like I just, I just had a conversation with Bob for the first time in a while, like uh, last month, and we got on the phone and I had a great chat. And uh, and you know, he's someone that I met very early in my in my tenure at Marvel, and just a great guy. And again, all these people, are so creative. You know, he's a he was a terrific editor. He's a wonderful artist. He's got a great story sense. He was a pleasure to work with.
0: John J. Moo.
1: Ah. Well, you allow me yet another plug <laughs> <laughs> there's you know there are two or three projects that i 've worked on in my entire career that mean probably mean more to me than any others and it 's hard to winnow it down because I, I could probably list a dozen projects that really are very near and dear to my heart, but of that top three, one of them is Moonshadow and uh, Dark Horse just put out a brand new hardcover edition of Moonshadow, and uh, I, found, I went through my files and found all my original notes, handwritten notes, the first notes when I was putting the story together, old scripts, uh, Muth found his uh, his layouts. I mean, it's packed with these wonderful extras, beautiful hardcover. And Moonshadow was the series that really allowed me to step outside the Marvel universe, to step outside the superhero universe. And instead of, I had a mindset, I'm writing comics, you know? When I started working on Moonshadow, I wasn't writing comics, I was just writing in the same way I would be writing a novel and working with an artist of the caliber of John J. Muth who is a fine painter and a wonderful storyteller, you know, when, you, when, you, when, the, when there's a talent like that across the table, you have to step up your game. And the beauty of his artwork challenged me to be a better writer. I think my writing challenged him to grow as an artist. And uh, the project that evolved out of that is one of the, the most amazing things I've ever worked on. And there are very few things I'm more proud of than Moonshadow.
0: I said well, they can take my word for this, of course. because I had you sign my copy, of it. it's a, That's it's, a right. it's a beautiful collection. And he's another uh, one
1: who's a, who's a great old old friend. We live near each other. We get together maybe once a month for lunch. And uh, for, from working on that project has come a life a lifelong friendship. All right, uh, Gil Kane. Wow, when I was a kid, Gil Kane was was one of the you know the shining stars in the comic book firmament. I was going to list. Two, two comic book artists of all time that mean more to me. Uh, no one means more to me than Jack Kirby and then Gil Kane after Kirby. And so when I started at D.C., you know, working on these anthology books, Gil Kane actually drew one of my stories. So that was amazing enough, you know, to have my, to have my name in the credits next to Gil Kane on this little eight-page science fiction story that I wrote. And then when I went to Marvel, uh, worked on Conan, and I worked with John Buscema, And then Buscema left, and I worked with Gil Kane. So, you know, I look back now and I say, oh, my God, I was just starting out. Would that I had been uh, the writer that I am now so I could have given him stories that I thought would be more worthy of him than what I was capable of doing then. But, you know, you can't question. What I've learned over the years is you can't question who you were. I have to appreciate what I did then and the hard work that I put in. But what a thrill, again, to work with Gil Kane, to see his name in the credits next to mine, it's like, it's like a comic book god letting you work with him. It was a fantastic a fantastic thing with him and with John Buscema as well. See, and that's actually
0: where I noticed it, was um, looking at the Conan thing and all the things. Oh, my God, he's,
1: he's worked with John Buscema and Gil Kane. It was really interesting. When I was, when I was first starting in the business, a lot of the guys that I had grown up admiring, a lot of the artists, were still working in the business. So, you know, I got to work with uh, Gene Colan on some Hulk stories, uh, you know, Kane, uh, Buscema, Steve Ditko, you know, r- drew a couple of these short stories I did at DC, and I wrote a Legion of Superheroes story, uh, which which is the one of the few stories that I will say was really a disaster on my part, but Ditko did a great job, you <laughs> know, so I got to work with Steve Ditko, I mean, it's unbelievable, a lot of those guys, were Don Heck, all those guys who I, I grew up worshipping were still around, so I, I got to, I got to, uh, I got to work with them, and um, eventually, you know, in the 90s, I got to work with John Romita Sr., uh, who was one of my all-time favorite artists, um, of course, working with Sal, another one of my all-time favorite artists, uh, and, you know, with you know, and, and by then, I was, I knew what I was doing, so I could give those guys stories that I was proud of, and, uh, you know, Sal and I worked together for two years on Spectacular Spider-Man, and it was one of the greatest collaborations I ever had, and Romita Sr. and I only did one story together, but it's, it was, Oh my god what a thrill and and to see this guy who at that time was probably had probably been in the business 40 or 50 years you know and he still took the work so seriously and did such a beautiful job and and just worked it over and worked it over and 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 he's also a lot of these guys like Sal and, and John Romita uh, I use a word that that we don't use anymore in our culture which is a gentleman you know you never hear anyone calling anyone a gentleman anymore. Those guys were gentlemen in the best sense of the word. It was such a delight to work with, and I so, so admire them And then, and I admire them still.
0: All right, well, that's pretty much what... Uh... We're done here, but uh, I, was, I was going to end up asking you if you wanted to uh, talk about anything you're doing, but we've been kind of doing that as we, as we right. go. All right, so
1: I'll, I'll just wrap up all the plugs for you. All uh, right, go ahead. Imp- collected edition of Impossible Incorporated is out now from IDW. The collected edition of The Girl in the Bay will be out in August 28th from Dark Horse and Burger Books. Um, you can go to Amazon Streaming or Google Play and watch Constantine's City of Demons, uh, which I wrote, which is uh, available for streaming now. And next year you can be on the lookout for the Superman Red Sun animated movie, which I wrote as well. And then my workshop, November 8th through 10th. Those are all the plugs for now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jam, I really appreciate your time. And uh, you've you've, been great. And uh, we will be hopefully talking to you real soon.
1: Yeah, happy to talk to you again sometime.
0: All right, you you have a good afternoon.
1: Thanks, you take care. Uh-huh. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread? Soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas. These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co.